Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Linux Downtime. I'm Joe and with me is Alex Kretschmer. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hello, hello. So people may know you from the self-hosted podcast, selfhosted.show. They should definitely check that out if they haven't heard of it. And that's what I want to talk to you about is self-hosting things. What is the very quick pitch for your show, first of all? Chris Fisher and I sit there and talk about self-hosting in general and uh, everything to do with it and sometimes stuff that has nothing to do with it. We sort of talk about the general proposition of being a pragmatist of self-hosting, you know, the, all the pitfalls of running your own server and being the one who's responsible for it when it breaks versus running a, a cloud service for something. And there's, you know, like anything, there's always trade-offs. And we, we try and cover those trade-offs in the show and try and figure out what's the most pragmatic approach for a particular problem that we're trying to solve. What's the best tool for the job, as it were? Absolutely. Because you work with cloud stuff day in, day out. So there must be some stuff, at least. You do see some advantages of using the cloud, but sometimes it just makes sense to self-host stuff. Well, what's interesting is our audience is a very diverse bunch. And uh, some folks are quite a zealot about it and say that self-hosting doesn't count unless the hardware is in your house and you can physically go and touch it. I don't draw the line there. I mean, for me, self-hosting is as long as I can log into the box and I have control over the service and or I'm not beholden to a third-party service in order to do something that should really be a local operation. So let's take Plex as an example, right? Plex is a media server, and it was my gateway drug into self-hosting. I probably owe my entire career, honestly, to wanting to self-host a Plex server. But the problem with Plex is that to log in and view content that is saved on my local hard drives in my basement, I have to connect to Plex's servers and authenticate with them to log in and view that content. So if my internet connection goes down, or if Plex's servers go down, or if Plex change their business model, suddenly I can't access the stuff that is in my house. And that doesn't feel quite right to me. So what we try and do is evaluate, you know, projects like Plex versus Jellyfin, which is a free and open source version effectively of Plex. It does much of the same things as Plex. It's not quite as polished yet, but it's 90% of the way there. Yeah. And I suppose that gets down to the heart of this as to why you self-host is digital sovereignty. I've heard as a phrase thrown around being just totally in charge of your own data. I think that speaks more to why I run a home assistant instance as well as self-host and that kind of thing. Like I got kind of tired of juggling 15 different apps to control the lights and the heating and the robo vacuums that I have and all all this other stuff in in my house, right? And I think there's got to be a better way. And as a technically inclined sort of chap, I look at the problem and I think, all right, how can I throw technology at this problem and solve it? Yes, having my light bulb on Wi-Fi is great, but what if someone flicks the switch? Suddenly that light bulb isn't getting power. It's no longer on the Wi-Fi. Right, So you then start thinking about the next step in the problem. Well, what if I put the Wi-Fi bit in the switch box? Okay, once I've done that, that's going to be talking to some cloud provider. In in my case, I use a company called Shelly that make these kind of like Oreo cookie-sized little things that go in the back of the light box, the light switch. They are great, but they still talk to Shelly's cloud. They have a local component as well, but they still talk to Shelly's cloud. So... What I tend to do with those guys is I flash a firmware on there called Tasmota, which is 100% local. And no matter what happens to Shelly as a company, 
that little box will keep working in the back of my light switch until it physically stops working. And I think that for me is the crux. It's something should continue to work unless there is a technical reason why it shouldn't work, like a hard drive filling up or a hardware failure, right? I shouldn't have to go and reset up a service or a piece of hardware. And there's a lot of synergy between those two things. You know, my uncle just upgraded his Android phone from Android uh, 4, I think. He bought a brand new phone. To, uh, his, his new phone runs Android 11, and he was busy complaining that it doesn't work the same. And I'm like, yeah, man, you know, that's 10 years worth of progress, right? And there's a lot can happen in that time. And I think we're at a point now with software and hardware where we're no longer kind of hamstrung by the performance of CPUs, of disks, of whatever it might be. We're at a point now where if I buy something today, there's a very real chance it could still be good enough in 20 years time. And that for me is the goal is if I set something up once, ideally it will just keep working until I decide. And that's the key point until I decide I want to change it. It's all about control, isn't it? That's the word. I suppose so. Yeah. Does that make you a control freak then? You could argue that, I guess, but <laughs> control freak, or is it uh, just being tired of setting the same stuff up over and over again and paying out the ass for uh, the same stuff over and over again? You know, like every five or 10 years, a completely new set of light bulbs for my house because there's a new standard came along, mm. right? I mean, it's it's born out of pragmatism. Yeah, it does. there's that word again, pragmatism and pragmatic. It doesn't seem on the face of it to be a very pragmatic approach to go to the hassle of self-hosting. But if you've got the skills to do it, then in a way that is more pragmatic because you can almost set it and forget it. Everything has a cost, whether it's money, data, time, expertise, what it might be. It just so happens I'm in a position with my skill set for my career that I can put in time and eventually save money in the long run. For that, obviously, I am trading a lot of hours of tinkering and fixing stuff and, you know, the the entropy of uh, managing my own self-hosted infrastructure. So how much of it do you do on-prem, as it were, and how much do you use the cloud? So if it is a, I suppose it's a one-to-many relationship, like a website, right, where I need some kind of uh, high bandwidth or I don't want to pass out my public IP or something like that. So my personal blog, my Unify controller, which manages four or five different people's Wi-Fi across the world, those kinds of things, they end up in the cloud. And most of the rest of the stuff by default is local unless a WireGuard connection doesn't give me the flexibility I need, then it uh, will end up in the cloud. And presumably storage is a big one that is local rather than in the cloud. Used to be. Particularly where media is involved, of course, that is the primary concern. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of entertaining the idea of running a Jellyfin server on top of a, a VPS provider. But there are services that you can make it work with. You know, you could use the Google Drive hack to get unlimited Google Drive stuff with the the workspaces they have. Uh, I won't go into details. <laughs> and our clone. And so you could transparently present a Google Drive backend to a Jellyfin instance running on a VPS if you wanted to. But in my experience, the reliability isn't that great. And it's, it's, uh, it's probably against terms of service as well. So for me, you know, that media, a lot of it at least is legally obtained. You know, I've ripped CDs, I've ripped DVDs, you know, stuff that over the years I have 
meticulously collated and collected. And it's nice when, you know, I've got a one-year-old daughter and I think, oh, I remember watching this as a kid and there it is on my, on my server, you know, and I could just put it on and I can reminisce and she can watch Stop It and Tidy Up as well or whatever it is, you know. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Vulture. Go to getvulture.com slash LDT to sign up and get $150 free credit to use in 30 days. Vulture offers high-performance cloud compute, bare metal, storage, and managed Kubernetes in 24 locations all over the world. You can pick from 12 operating systems, including Windows, or you can bring your own ISO. Vulture's marketplace offers one-click installation of more than 50 applications and operating systems, including instant Minecraft and other game servers, VoIP and VPN platforms, content management systems like WordPress, and cPanel. Also check out their optimized plans, CPU, memory, and storage optimized instances, featuring the latest AMD Epic chips. So go to getvulture.com slash LDT to get your $150 credit and support the show. That's G-E-T-V-U-L-T-R dot com slash L-D-T. So I know that Chris, your co-host, he uses Raspberry Pis because he lives in an RV and power consumption is a huge issue for him. Where are you on that with, you know, you've got Raspberry Pis and low-end ARM devices through to sort of low-end x86, let's say NUX, that sort of thing, through to quite beefy x86, Xeons and stuff. What have you settled on? So for those that don't know, I emigrated to America about three or four years ago. And in that process, I completely rebuilt my infrastructure from near enough zero. I I left my old server at my dad's house in the UK, and that's now my remote backup rig. So that is, or was, an old Xeon server that I built, I don't know, a decade ago. So when I moved here, the uh, serverbuilds.net guys had just posted a dual Xeon LGA 2011 build guide. And so I had... 128 gigs of RAM, two Xeon chips in there, quite a few SSDs, 15 hard drives, that kind of thing. I kind of went all out with the the Best Buy easy store kind of goodness because I was, you know, it was around Black Friday. Uh, But a couple of years went by and eventually, you know, I I used this single box to virtualize everything. I virtualized PFSense. I virtualized all the OpenShift stuff I was doing for work. Everything was running on this one box. And so that dual Xeon box, even though it was pulling 100, 150 watts continuously, actually was quite relatively power efficient because I was running so much on it. It was so dense. About two years ago, two and a half years ago, just before COVID, uh, my wife and I moved house. And in that process, I took the opportunity to break out things like the firewall into their own box. So now my OpenSense instance is running on an i3 third gen i think it's pretty old uh, which i got for about ten dollars off ebay and that is now a dedicated box and the reason i broke the firewall out in particular was because i got fed up of every time i rebooted esxi or proxmox or whatever the hypervisor i was using that month was my internet would go down obviously because the firewall was just a vm on that on that machine And so once I took the firewall off there, suddenly the density went down just enough that my brain kind of went, do you really need that to be a dual Xeon, Alex? (laughs) And so I I ended up then coming across something called QuickSync, which is a hardware media encoding engine built into 6th, 7th, 8th gen and newer Intel CPUs. 
And this technology is absolutely incredible. And for me, it was a complete game changer. It allowed me to transcode a dozen 1080p Plex streams for about six or seven watts. Wow. Compared to the dual Xeon box that when it was doing the same thing, and I've got a post on my website on my blog that goes through this, the dual Xeon was pulling three or 400 watts doing the same thing. Wow. You know, energy prices in North Carolina are regulated by the state. So we pay about 10 or 11 pence per kilowatt hour. It's incredibly cheap. But lately, obviously in the news in England, you know, energy prices, yeah. you become cognizant of these things and you think, well, it's going to hit me soon, sooner rather than later. Um, and so I've actually, in the last six months, rebuilt my server and the dual Xeon has now been retired for around an i5-8500. And the simple fact is it draws about 30 or 40 watts at idle. It has 64 gigs of RAM and it, with quick sync in there, it does everything I could ever need. But you weren't tempted to go full on Raspberry Pi or onboard then? No way, no way. Simply because the performance, number one, if I wanted to do any transcoding with Plex or Jellyfin on uh, a Raspberry Pi, good luck. Next thing is connecting drives. Like the, There aren't really any SATA interfaces. I'd have to hang everything off the USB bus. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So that's just a no-no for you then. It, it's SATA or nothing as far as you're concerned. Am I a Luddite for saying so? But yeah, just putting storage on USB just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, I mean, I, I have some storage on USB, but that's sort of backups of backups. Nothing main is going on USB as far as I'm concerned. I mean, so I run ZFS as my file system. So I, I have I have kind of like a two-tier approach. I have uh, about seven or eight, 14, I think, terabyte hard drives that are merged together using MergerFS that present themselves as a single volume to Linux. And then as a secondary thing, I have a ZFS mirror, which uh, is, like, I think, 10 terabyte mirror that has all my important data on it, like um, photos and documents and music and that kind of thing that's pretty irreplaceable. Mm. But yeah, for, for a lot of the more ephemeral stuff, that just lives on MergerFS and I kind of just forget about it with... Uh, SnapRaid. So I, I tend not to even back that kind of media up. The, the ZFS mirror is backed up in three different places, but the uh, the MergerFS array, air quotes, is kind of just best effort. So storage-wise then, I know that you're a big fan of shucking drives, which is essentially buying cheap USB drives and breaking them out of the uh, enclosure. Surely you are at a stage in your career where you could afford proper in quotes, NAS drives or whatever, but yet you still buy these cheap Black Friday deals like I do. So uh, defend yourself, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Well, I listen to two and a half admins as well. And, you know, I've heard Jim and Alan tell you that you're crazy for doing this. And I disagree simply because the simple uh, equation, right? If I save, let's say, $50 per drive and I buy 10 drives, that's more than enough to make up the difference saved between buying a whole new replacement versus one of these so-called enterprise-grade drives. My experience, which is anecdotal at best, but it is what it is, is that in the last four years, I've bought about 12 or 15 hard drives. I've had one failure. That matches my experience in the preceding four or five years where I wasn't buying shuck drives where I had one or two failures in that similar time span. And so 
like I said, my experience is anecdotal, but I haven't seen any difference from a reliability perspective. So why wouldn't I buy the cheaper one? What about performance though? It's storing media. I don't care about the performance. Right. The ZFS mirror that I referenced is actually running on a pair of Hitachi uh, 7200 RPM drives. So I don't actually use the shuck drives for that, but for everything else I do. Right. I know that you're really into containers, but you also mentioned virtualizing things. Where are you with that these days then? For applications, I tend to run everything in Docker. I, I just find it a really easy interface and I've built a little bit of tooling around it myself. You know, I've, I've got some Ansible playbooks that spit out compose files if I put the right variables into a playbook. I've got aliases that turn Docker compose up into just DCP and then I can interact with all of my services all at once that way. The only thing I have virtualized is Home Assistant, and I keep that as an encapsulated virtual machine, but everything else is just running on the bare host. All right. And, and that seems to have changed then. You said that you had this really dense dual Xeon box that had loads of VMs on it. What changed? I don't spin up OpenShift two or three times a week anymore like I used to, so that, that's a big change, right. uh, simply because the product's a lot more stable than it was three or four years ago. Also, my understanding has improved too, so I don't need to do that quite as much. Uh, it was very much a learning tool back then. Mm. These days, the documentation's improved, the product's improved, so I, I can kind of get away with uh, some of the internal Red Hat tooling for our lab environments there instead of having to do it at home as well. Right. But in terms of VMs, like I said, you know, the primary one was uh, PFSense, and then there was the OpenShift stuff. And then I kept, I actually kept all of my containers in a separate VM and passed through the disks from the host to that VM uh, using PCI pass-through. But then some problems doing quick sync pass-through to VMs and stuff like that basically maybe completely changed my tune about a year ago and go to just running everything on the host. And I was really uncomfortable doing that because I really enjoyed the encapsulation that a VM provided and the separation of kernel panics and all the rest of it. But Honestly, I've not had a kernel panic in a year. Uh, all the applications have been well-behaved. Containers do what they need to do. They keep things separate. They keep things encapsulated as well. So for my use case, if it's available in a container or in a Docker, then I'll spin it up. If it's if it's not, I can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> what about snapshots, though? I mean, obviously, containers solve that problem. But if there's not a container for it, then surely a VM makes more sense in terms of backing up snapshots and stuff. But then you're speaking about separating application configuration and data from the runtime. Mm. And that's just good sysadmin practice, right? And I think that's one of the things that containers have really driven home for me is by having the runtime in the container and the application data mounted in through a volume, I can do what I like to the app. I can stop it, restart it, destroy it, move it to a completely different box if I want to. And as long as that volume that I'm mounting moves with the container, it's as if nothing ever happened. It's almost like some sort of modern magic, eh? A little bit. I mean, you could do the same thing with uh, live migration of a VM or sending the QCAL to snapshot across. Or, you know, There's a lot of ways you could skin that particular turkey, right, to, to solve this problem. But it comes down to efficiency. And I, I look at the fact that I can run dozens and dozens of containers in the same space that I could run a handful of VMs simply because a VM is trying to emulate memory, disk, CPU, all the rest of it. Whereas a container is just a process isolated in memory by the kernel. 
Mm. It's just so much more efficient. And uh, I look at the failure scenario of uh, container exploit or something like that, and they're just so far fetched. A lot of these CVEs that ha- that come out with root exploits and container island hopping and all this kind of stuff. I'm just not worried about it. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Alex. It's been uh, great talking to you. I mentioned selfhosted.show, your podcast. Where else can people go to find you, your blog, for example? Uh, the blog is blog.ktz.me. I'm also on Twitter at Ironic Badger. All right, well, I'll put links to those in the show notes. But uh, until we talk again, thanks a lot, man. Thanks, Joe.